Stay tuned for the Cannabis Hour coming up next. Marijuana smoking, experts point out, can make a helpless addict of its victim within weeks, causing physical and moral ruin and death. The first legally sold marijuana here goes to an Iraqi war veteran. A new insurance study out this week looked at car crashes in several states that allow the use of recreational marijuana. You're a doc. You've studied this. You've talked to the researchers. You're saying marijuana can kill cancer cells. Who taught you how to do this stuff? You, all right? I learned it by watching you. Marijuana is illegal under federal law. States have legalized recreation. No wonder you can't open your eyes. What do you expect doping yourself up with this wrong stuff? What do you know about pot? Good morning. You are listening to the Cannabis Hour a bi-weekly radio program where we discuss all things cannabis. I'm your host, Jen Procacci. I've got longtime cannabis attorney, Hannah Nelson, and Michael Katz of MCA on the show here with me today. Together, we're going to be unpacking the tone of Monday's Board of Supervisors meeting as it relates to our phase one cultivation applicants and operators. We're going to be discussing topics like potential upcoming enforcement, um, the potential land use ordinance, and how we can protect and bolster up our phase one applicants during this process and protect our legacy cultivators. So before we get started with that, I'd like to let you know that here at the station, we've just begun our spring quiet drive. The show must go on. And in order for it to do so, we need the support of members and listeners like you. Here at the station, we haven't wanted to interrupt crucial programming with a traditional fundraising drive, so we've been holding a quiet drive in hopes of raising enough funds to meet our budget goal. KZYX is committed to covering emerging stories and delving into the details of what's happening right now by bringing you the voices of people in our community who have that information. This vital news coverage as well as KZYX's essential music service, is made possible through community support. If you're a member of KZYX, thank you. Your support ensures local journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. Please help us sustain this community resource. KZYX is committed to bringing you reliable information about what's going on in your community as well as the world at large. You depend on reliable information so you can make informed decisions. We're able to bring you this important coverage thanks to the generosity of listeners who gave during earlier fundraisers. Please join them and join our KZYX community. Approximate costs to run KZYX include $1.50 per minute, $80 per hour, and $1,915 per day. If you would like to become a part of the KZYX membership and help us sustain our community radio station, please donate today. You can do so by giving us a call. The number is 707-895-2324 by sending a check to post office box 904 Philo, California, 95466 or the easiest way is just to visit our website which is kzyx.org and you can click the link at the top of the homepage. We have fabulous thank you gifts available including KZYX masks, bandanas, socks, 
tote bags. We have three different signed prints by Winston Smith, including one of the Green Day album cover, Insomniac. And we have Eden Emergency Solar and Crank Powered Radios. You can view these thank you gifts on our website, kzyx.org. Once you click the donate link at the top of our homepage, I really hope you can serve Hannah Nelson and Michael Katz of MCA here on the line with me. Hannah Nelson is a longtime um, a cannabis attorney and a really fabulous member of our community who has really served the cannabis community for a very long time and done some really important work for us. And she continues to advocate for the cannabis community. Michael Katz of MCA is... Um, the executive director of the Mendocino Cannabis Alliance, and he was a founding board member as well. He has also worked in communications, branding, and marketing, producing consumer content for some of the largest brands in the world, including Google, YouTube, Disney, Activision, Apple, and more. And he has spent the last several years working with licensed small batch cultivators from Northern California to help them gain access to the market. Welcome, Hannah and Michael. Are you both here with me on the line? Yes, thank you, Jen. Good morning. Yes, good morning. So good, good morning to you. Good morning to Hannah. You know, as I think we are all aware here, um, as we, you know, we've been covering it a lot on the air and it's been something percolating in our community. We're really struggling here with our cannabis ordinance, and we're really struggling with what's going to go on with these folks that have applied um, from the beginning of this cannabis ordinance. They are going to be referred to as the phase one operators for those who are listening to this show that may not know. We're really sort of at this crucial junction where we're not super sure what's going to happen. Um, it appears that our phase one cultivators could be really compromised in trying to move forward to obtain their licenses. There was a Board of Supervisors meeting this past Monday that had some really unpleasant tones to it, and we're going to focus the beginning of our show on kind of discussing that with Hannah and Michael, and then we're going to be moving forward to talk about how we can protect these Phase 1 applicants as we continue to move forward, possibly to what is called a land use permit, which we also will explain, but... Just to get started, Hannah and Michael, would you like to sort of recap um, what occurred at the meeting on Monday? Sure, Hannah, would you like to start off or would you like me to go? Go ahead and I'll jump in after. Sure, thanks so much. So, um, you know, the primary focus of the meeting on Monday was uh, all types of enforcement. Um, and I want to start off the conversation by saying that uh, MCA as an organization uh, supports the sheriff's priorities of enforcement for egregious environmental and criminal actors. Uh, it is essential that the community work together to address the very large problem that does exist here. That said, when we are talking about the operators within the licensed program, uh, we view those, the vast majority of those operators, as people who have come out and jumped into an uncertain system to be regulated and are, for the most part, doing everything they can to meet the needs of this ever-changing system. And so when we think about enforcement, our idea and code enforcement's idea to this point has been communicated is that we should be focusing on trying to bring people into compliance 
and we should be focusing on how to keep people in compliance and how to keep people in the program. The tone of the conversation on Monday felt largely that the magnifying glass was being uh, used to kind of d dive into the existing operators and find out how many of them have done things wrong with their paperwork or different types of things um, to say that there may be people who are not doing what they're supposed to and people who should be removed from the program. And our contention is that the uh, program itself has been so confusing in so many ways for so many years that it is reasonable to understand why there might be confusions in the paperwork. Um, you know, there have been comments made that after three or four years of this, uh, all the paperwork should be ready. The, these farmers have had plenty of time. You know, why isn't it where it should be? And, you know, that kind of idea completely ignores the fact that the program has changed departments. Uh, there was initially, they were accepting paper applications. Uh, there have been huge amounts of turnover. And so while we identify that there is probably confusion, a lot of confusion on both sides, it's been our position that enforcement, especially heavy-handed enforcement, especially against the licensed operators, shouldn't be happening until there is a clean reset of the opportunity for all of the current operators to submit their, resubmit their applications in full digitally, which is something the county has been discussing for months uh, and has not been launched yet. And, you know, use that process to really identify the amount of uh, people who are really in the program to be in it and, uh, you know, stop conflating those who are doing their best to be compliant in a broken system with those who may be gaming the system. And, you know, it's, you can't say that every person is perfect and, you know, nobody would say that, but we see those who have come into the program as deserving uh, the respect and mutual respect of having that opportunity to finally enter into the program in a clean way that can be cleanly evaluated and enable people to move forward. And we heard a lot less about that than we did about how to enforce and why the current program operators should be enforced upon. Adam? Yeah, thanks, Michael. I, I think that it breaks up into a couple of different categories. And what was frustrating to me during the 10-hour meeting is that you know, the history of supporting um, law enforcement and code enforcement's need to go after egregious environmental violations has not changed. I don't think that uh, any one of us would deny that importance of uh, continued enforcement for really egregious violations and violations of uh, certainly law enforcement by you know um safety issues that uh, there's no doubt that that is a fundamental necessary part of our community in fact i personally have multiple times commended the sheriff for focusing on those priorities and I continue to commend him for doing so, particularly in Covalo. I also commend the code enforcement team for really trying to effectuate compliance in their efforts. 
And I think the biggest problem is when we're talking about the kinds of actions that are anticipated and a move to a proactive system rather than a complaint-driven system at a time when we do not have an equity program in so people who might have been on-ramped in a legitimate way have no, uh, no opportunity where the number of people who need to be uh, enforced upon, um, we, we have no idea what those numbers are. There is not any data. And, and I'm separating out the enforcement actions that need to occur against people who have not at all come into any form of regulated system. And then the need to sort those into where are, what what is going on is it egregious what is what is actually going on is it in you know invading a small neighborhood is it about environmental crimes i i think that it's worthy of that kind of prioritization but separate from that is the issue of those that have already come into a program and there i feel like there needs to be a distinction not only between those that have come into a program and those that have not at all, but further refine it in terms of recognizing the long history here of this particularly troubled ordinance and application of the ordinance uh, or implementation of the ordinance through four separate regimes of the program through a record-keeping system that at best was minimal and at worst has been, you know, pretty egregious in terms of not keeping track of its own records and not having a systematized way. I personally have quite a number of clients whom I have resubmitted and resubmitted and resubmitted the same materials for. So when I hear that the focus on all these people in the program that are, uh, you know, gaming the system and whatnot, well, you know, I have no way to quantify that, but I don't think that the the program or the county does either because of the poor records. What I do object to, and I don't, I don't even discount that there may be some of those people. I don't know, but I do object to the, the lack of accounting for how we got where we're at now. And I think that as Michael pointed out, focuses the attention now on what needs to be done now. And that's, I think, where where we're coming from is, hey, let's not conflate the issues, do the enforcement against the egregious violations that have we've always supported, and then let's get the system straight and correct and give people an opportunity to completely resubmit everything and give the county an opportunity to collect that data correctly and sort it in a way so it can really see who within the regulated system are in fact complying and who are not. Right now, they can't really make those claims because they don't have the information. And I'd like to just add, um, you know, with, with some actual numbers that were presented on Monday uh, from code enforcement, 
you know, looking at the, the amount of complaints that come in, there are, you know, about 15% of the complaints that come into code enforcement, 15% are coming from the licensed cannabis market. And of those, they indicated that the vast majority of those complaints were coming from about 5% of the total pool of, uh, of applicants. So when, and that aligns with a study, a uh, survey that we've just recently done where, you know, basically we asked people, how often have you received a notice of violation? And the answer was 90% of them had not. And of the 10% of them that did, all of those notice of violations were corrected before they became citations. So even with the data that we do have from the county, we understand that those in the licensed uh, program are the ones who are causing the least amount of the problem. But because they are at you know, the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak, uh, it is really easy to enforce on people in the program, apparently a lot easier than it is to enforce on people who are not in the program. And we see that as upside down. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so a question that popped into my mind while I was listening to both of you explain what is going on is that, you know, the cannabis program has been muddling along for years now. I know I'm a phase one operator myself. And why suddenly has this sort of come to a head with these threats of enforcement? I know I've heard of um, possibly a contract with the same satellite company that uh, Humboldt used to send out their Babin letters. Is it due to the looming of phase three? Uh, why is this all suddenly in the spotlight? Well, I, I'm going to take a stab at this. I, I'm, I'm speculating because, of course, I'm not the one bringing it forward at the moment but i'm 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 really believing that this is part of you know i've been using the word conflation a lot or to conflate which is really just to combine things and you know i i think that this is part of what's going on and that there's a very real fungible tangible um expression that needs to be acknowledged of community members who are under siege of one sort or another. Um, I don't want to minimize some of the things that are going on. I think our point is let's look at where they're going on and by whom. And I think that the moment in time of those voices needing a forum and an expression and them taking the opportunity in the context of the need to figure out the new set of regulations that will address other issues um, allows for the opportunity to, you know, conflate the issues, combine them, and not really sort it out. I think that everybody feels the urgency of addressing the very real concerns and that when there is that kind of urgency, the temptation is really great to just kind of throw everything we can at it. And, and you know, to a certain extent, that may be appropriate, but it's in what direction and how. And, and is it going to be effective? In fact, some of the supervisors that are most strongly in favor 
of moving to some of these enforcement actions have questioned whether or not some of those approaches will, in fact, achieve the result with the amount of money that needs to be spent. And and I think that those are valid questions. It doesn't mean that they don't support utilizing enforcement methods. It means that we need to be smart about how we're effectuating what we're trying to effectuate. So I think just to answer your question more specifically, Jen, you know, I, I, I think that it's a, a combination of uh, timing and, again, as Michael alluded to, it's kind of, you know, a very real concern that the low-hanging fruit, the people who have been identified as being in the program, even if there's some tiny fraction of them that are scamming the system or using it as cover, that becomes an easy poster child for what else ails you. And it's easy to not focus on the very difficult dilemma of how do we as a larger community get control of some of the other issues, the violence and the people who are unable to come into the regulated system too. And even that is more nuanced because don't we have a responsibility to look at why is that? Why is it that people are not coming forward? And maybe it's a matter of not exclusively, but in part looking at what does make it so difficult for them to come into the system? And, and granted, there may be people who never, ever want to come into the system at all. But I suspect, but we don't have accurate numbers, that there are quite a few people that because of the barriers to entry have not been able to participate. And, you know, then the question becomes, well, is it right for them to start cultivating in the meantime? Well, I'm not justifying that, but I'm wondering if they're not actually causing some of the harm that people are complaining of, is the response and the conflation of them with some of the people who are causing really egregious harm necessary, and then further conflating those people with the people who are trying to comply. And uh, and I'll yes. add that I think that uh, why this is happening right now too is because the community is concerned uh, because they've seen the issues with the existing program and they hear conversations about a new program and the concern is don't we need to figure out how to manage the problems that have already been created uh, first? Like, don't we need to clean our house uh, and then be able to kind of move forward with that understanding? And that kind of, you know, I think that most people would agree that, I mean, I actually haven't heard anybody say to me out loud that the people in the program, in the license program, who are good operators, uh, that they should fail. Nobody has said they want to see them fail. But when it comes to how we then create different procedures and how we set up the new ordinance, uh, it, that's how do we actually follow through on that idea is by implementing regulations that will enable those operators to continue operating and move towards their annual license. So I think the fear is, is reasonable. The concern is reasonable because 
the uncertainty is, level is so high. But, you know, MCA has been suggesting uh, many uh, ways to create, create that streamlined process and enable uh, the protection of those licensed phase one operators. And, you know, getting those recommendations implemented is our number one goal and, you know, a goal that we believe many people share. Michael, would you like to speak to what some of um, those ideas are? Uh, sure. Well, um, you know, starting with uh, the, I mean, in relationship to phase three, uh, we have long said that the idea is to maintain as many open pathways as possible for the existing operators. So while we have heard that maybe, uh, you know, theoretically 70 five to 90% of the phase one operators will not be able to get through the program, you know, we're still not fully convinced of that uh, for a number of reasons. And so we believe that there are ways to revise uh, phase one and make it as efficient as possible to enable as many people to get through it. Um, and then for those who cannot get through phase one, you know, as far as how we approach the phase three program, we've been specifically recommending, as did the planning commission, for a 60-day window of uh, early enrollment for phase one operators when phase three does open. But we've also been advocating for priority processing of those applications from phase one operators whenever they come in because it's possible that some of those operators might not find out that phase one doesn't work for them for until after that early enrollment window has passed. And so still in the interest of clearing out the bottleneck and making sure that the people who have already gone through the program are able to move forward, you know, we think that those uh, two items along with the uh, ensuring that the administrative permit is maintained uh, for anyone moving over uh, and that they're are as uh, you know how to set up phase three specifically to enable the easiest of those transitions. Hannah, would you like to add anything? No, I mean I think I think that there's you know a, a couple of tracks here that we have to continue to barrel down. One is you know, as this new ordinance is crafted to really make sure that the mechanisms to allow the people under the current system to flop over to the new system without, with remaining the continuity of these independent businesses. And, and that requires a number of tools. And there's not an easy answer, but it's a really important, you know, component of any new ordinance that we have to allow the continuity of these businesses, particularly if, you know, there is a reset in terms of resubmission under the current system. And it's, a, you know, we're able to really sort out the wheat from the chaff in terms of compliance and who's adhering and who's not. Um, then everything, everything needs to be done to protect those businesses and allow them to continue to be productive members of the community and reward them for having stuck their neck out, neck out to begin with. 
And so that's one track, and it's really, really important that all energy be focused on that. The second track is, in the meantime, as we're coming up with those mechanisms, and as Michael pointed out, a couple of the important features that need to be a part of it in terms of the open uh, the application window and then the uh, continued priority as people might need to flop over. It's important to retain at the same time all efforts to get people through the current system so that they do not have a lack of continuity in their business in that realm also. Because really, as I see it, the only way that they would even be eligible for some new mechanism in the new ordinance to continue if they flopped over to a discretionary permit is if they are in compliance with the existing system. Well, the only way to really determine that is to continue to process them, to continue to work on opening the portal and resubmission, to really looking at the instances and providing an opportunity to review some weird instances where through no fault of the applicant and maybe even no fault of the county, but things are not clear. And there's a weird situation that needs to be looked at and go, oh, wait, we thought that it was such and such, but in fact, uh, these materials were sent in, but, oh, we don't have any record of it. You know, it just clears up all of all of that stuff to do the reset. So I think that it's important to bear in mind the need to keep barreling forward with the manner in which we can sort out the wheat from chaff while we build in a system for having those people, for <laughs> lack of better technical terms, flop over to the new system. And, you know, we can't just abandon them in the process. It's also worth noting that you know, in in the current system, the equity program just now is opening. And there are some difficulties with respect to how our local equity program, it's called an LEP, it's an actual document, was written. We were we were in an incredible time crunch and the board finally agreed to hire HSU um, to help write the assessment and then the proposed plan to submit to the state. And at the time, there were some issues that I and, and some MCA members also pointed out that really needed to be addressed and changed before the program was finalized. And at the time, we were assured, don't worry, this is just so that we could get the grant money and then there will be an opportunity to refine it. And in fact, once we got the grant money, we went back and we made substantial recommendations to the people who were dealing with the uh, creating the, the program. And we were told, oh, no, we can't do that because our LEP, our local equity plan that we submitted to the state, doesn't allow for it. And so we said, well, wait, we were told that we can modify it and, and submit a modification to the state. And we were told, oh, sorry, that's too much work. 
And so inherently built into the program as it was envisioned and started, we were in a big rush and it was, you know, the bones were put together without the opportunity to really think through all of this. And when we did think it through, then we were told there was no opportunity to change. And so I just want to give you a small example. You know, the tax situation for cannabis is not like any other business. The IRS basically does not allow cannabis businesses to deduct ordinary business expenses. The only expenses they're allowed to deduct are cost of goods sold. And as a result, on people's taxes, it looks like they have more gross income than they actually do. Well, one of the eligibility requirements for the equity program is to be under such a low threshold of income, which on its surface really makes sense that they're deserving of the funds. But when you look at how income is reported as compared to other businesses, there's no way that people can qualify. So I mentioned this. I'm sorry to go off on that tangent, but this is an example of why there's a lot that we're just rushing towards trying to do the best we can and that need further refinement. And I think that we need to be mindful of all of that and all of the history as we move forward for solutions. And I'll, Thank and, you, you know, Hannah. And we've had his, uh, Go ahead, Michael. Oh, yes. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to point out, you know, Hannah, is, as you mentioned earlier, has been doing this for 30 years. Uh, advocacy. She is an expert by any definition of the word in law, cannabis policy, uh, all of these questions. And I think it's uh, important to note that in addition to Hannah, you know, our MCA's advisory group, uh, our volunteers, our policy committee have a combined, you know, decades and decades of direct experience with cannabis policy. Uh, and so when MCA comes forward with recommendations, they're not based on, you know, pipe dreams. They're based on an understanding of the really complex landscape that we're facing and a desire to find a middle ground that can work for everybody and everybody, including the licensed operator. And so when we think about the equity program, for example, like it's important to remind people that the reason that the county was granted over $3 million in funds from the state for this equity program is as a direct result of the negative impacts that the war on drugs has had on people in this county. And that, that's something very important to remember because this, that means that, you know, there's an acknowledgement everywhere that the war on drugs was bad, it has failed, and that it is, there needs to be resolution from it, and that's where these equity funds come from. So we see how these funds could be distributed and the program could be set up in a way to actually benefit the people who need it. And so we hope, and have, you know, we had hoped in doing all of the work that Hannah mentioned, that those recommendations would have been implemented. And of course, there are time restrictions and all that. But here we are now, um, you know, continuing to make very uh, intentional, uh, well-researched uh, suggestions. And, you know, I, I think that it's in the whole community's best interest to, you know, really reach out to the supervisors and request that they work more closely with us because, 
when we're tr- if you're trying to make a program in a vacuum, then you're always going to find that you haven't thought of something. And with people like Hannah and Eugene Coleman from Origins Council and Patrick Sellers, our board uh, chair and policy committee co-chair, like we're talking about a brain trust uh, towards cannabis policy that is just unheard of. And we have it here for free at the service of the county and the community to provide that support. And, you know, we I just wanted to mention that because it's not like we're it's written. It really isn't. And it doesn't have to be like, oh, nobody knows what to do. It, the actual the, the reality is that we have the ideas of what to do that can solve the issues of neighborhoods that can solve the issues of uh, you know get making sure the right uh, the people in the license program are correctly identified as good operators and are able to move forward. We have all of those suggestions, uh, and we are more than willing to to work to implement them. Thank you so much, Michael. I just want to let our listeners know that in just a few minutes, I'm going to be opening up the phone lines to callers. So if you're out there with a burning question or comment you would like to share, get ready. That's going to be happening in just a few minutes here. But before before we move on to that, uh, Michael, I know you had mentioned that MCA had some survey info from licensed operators in the county that you were interested in sharing. And also, um, if we have time for it, some good operator stories to sort of push back on this vilification of phase one operators that has unfortunately been going on. So would you like to go ahead and speak a little on the survey information that you had mentioned? Sure. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, so we I put out a survey for licensed operators in Mendocino County. Um, you know, as we had been hearing a lot of these stories about, uh, you know, people who may be gaming the system or, you know, just kind of focusing on the, the potentially worst elements, um, we felt it was important to kind of gather some data that we could use to point to the realities on the ground. Um, so, you know, some of the things that we had heard leading up to the creating the survey, there's this idea that the people in the license program may not be being uh, inspected at all, that they're just kind of being set up and left to their own devices uh, to do what they will. But, you know, looking at the uh, looking at our survey results, the vast majority uh, I'd say you know, 75 to 85% of our respondents have been inspected uh, definitely once. I'd say uh, when we get to when there's about uh, twice has been 17%, people uh, inspected three times, 10%. There are eight who have been inspected more than five. Um, and so, you know, basically we're seeing that there are, not, and that's just from uh, the planning and building and ag department. There are inspections that happen from uh, the county. There are inspections that happen from uh, CDSW. And so, you know, it's important for people to realize that these operators are actually the most regulated agriculturalists in the history of the world, most likely. And so, especially the, those who are operating with uh, a state provisional license, they have gone through inspections. They have gone through review. They are really uh, exemplary uh, individuals who are going out of their way and have had to go out of their way to ensure that all of these very complicated regulations are met. And they're being tested on that, and they're passing with flying colors. 
just as an example, there's been a bunch of inspections going on this week. Uh, and we are hearing nothing but positivity uh, from our members about how those inspections have been going. And, you know, a real desire from the inspectors to see the community succeed. And that's, you know, we appreciate that. And that's the kind of approach that we're looking to instill more and more. Um, I would say that the uh, two-thirds of our respondents have had to submit their documents to the county more than once. Um, and that is, you know, so traditionally, I don't know, outside of the outside of the cannabis industry, uh, what people's experiences are. Um, but, you know, we have supported for a long time additional staffing uh, and ways to keep staffing uh, in in the jobs at the county to make sure that the programs are running stably. Um, you know, and so there are. There, there's just a lot of information that shows and continues to show that the existing operators are doing everything they can to navigate a broken system. And uh, it's, it's, it's just important that we keep reinforcing that until the procedures that we need are in place to enable them to continue operations and to move forward. And Jen, if it's okay, you, I'd, like to add two, I'd like to add two brief yeah, go ahead, other Hannah. items. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk about how many people in the current program are not licensed at the state. And so I kind of wanted to briefly address that. And I also wanted to address some of the other uh, factors outside of the control of the applicant that are uh, leading to some statistics, perhaps, that are, are being characterized as out of compliance. So with respect to the state licensing, and, and I really, you know, the, the problem is we can't, we haven't done an apples to apples and oranges to oranges comparison. Our county, after I advocated for two solid years to do a mix and match style of permit, meaning that uh, if you have both uh, uh, part of your cultivation is outdoor and part of it is mixed light or whatever combination that you can get one permit, except for nurseries. Nurseries require a separate permit. However, at the state level, every single separate, at least for now, and I'm, I'm, I'm understanding that that might be likely to change, um, but currently, even if you have a total of 5,000 square feet only, and half of it is outdoor and half of it is mixed light. You actually have to have two state licenses. So it's a little difficult to compare number of state licenses to number of permits, but also it makes it a little bit complicated because under our local system, we do require two separate permits for nursery versus cultivation. So I think that, you know, comparing apples and apples and oranges and oranges is important. The other thing about state licensing, and we just don't know how many people are out there like this, but I can say anecdotally from my own practice that I have clients who, for example, are changing from mixed light to outdoor. The mixed light state license costs about $12,000. And they've put in their application with the state to change their license to outdoor. 
Right now, I have clients that are, have been waiting at least four months for the state to process their application, their state life, even if it's the same property, the same applicant, the same footprint, everything. And so they're faced, if their state license is expiring, they're fa- and they know that they're doing, they're, they're, they're just switching types, they're faced with a dilemma. If they pay that $12,000 to renew their state license, even though they know they'll be approved because they haven't really changed anything and all of the criteria is the same, the only thing that they've done is remove a covering or not use lights or whatever, um, that money doesn't come back to them. It doesn't get credited once they switch over to a new license. So some, unfortunately, have been having to make the choice to take the chance that there might be a small gap in between. Now, they had a valid license. They're not doing anything differently other than the removal of what makes it mix light into uh, into outdoor. So it's anecdotal, but there are quite a few of those people. There are other people who have some unusual circumstances because of COVID, for example. And we shouldn't forget that we're all living in these extraordinary times. And while... We're pleased to see the vaccination rates go up and that things are opening. It shouldn't be underestimated the impact that the massive restrictions that everybody has had to live with has had a severe impact. And that dovetails into my other point, which is some of the local technical violations or could be considered violations are things like not having had the proper building permit sign off. And one of the things that should be looked at, and again, I'm not saying this is true in all instances, but there is a massive delay for CAL FIRE inspections, which are a requirement for most building permits. There's a backlog and a delay in building inspection. There's a backlog and delay in actually from the time you submit a building permit until it's reviewed and issued. So I think that Again, I'm not trying to make excuses for anybody who's not following the rules or whatnot. I just think that the entire holistic um, situation needs to be looked at. And, and that's a similar point is what I was making about the issues as we go forward and find solutions. Thank you, Hannah. So I'm going to go ahead and give out the number really quick. We've got time for one or two quick callers here. So that number is 707 707- Eight nine five two four four eight. That is seven zero seven eight nine five two four four eight. And we are here to take your questions or comments. And while we are waiting for our callers, of which I am sure we will have at least one or two, Michael, would you share a little information on um, how someone can find out more about MCA, what MCA is all about, how our listeners can support the important work MCA is doing? Sure. Thank you so much, Jen. Uh, so yeah, MCA, uh, we have uh, a digital presence as one must. Uh, you can find us on the web at mendocannabis.com. Um, that's M-E-N-D-O cannabis.com. And we are on Facebook as VMC Alliance. And we are on Instagram as mendo.cannabis. 
Um, and, you know, our website has our policy positions. It has uh, the ability to sign up to become a member or a supporter. We proudly open our membership to anyone who supports, you know, common sense, uh, sustainable policy and uh, advocacy. And, uh, you know, so we have the vast majority of our uh, membership are made up of local licensed cultivators, but we actually have people from all over the state who are supporting members uh, because they understand the importance of, uh, you know, what we're doing up here in the community that we support. And along those lines, I don't know, uh, Jen, I know that you had mentioned the interest in uh, talking about some good operator stories, which I have uh, a memo posted on that on our website if people go there and check out policy. But I thought maybe just for a moment you could give the audience a little bit of, uh, I hate to turn the table on you, but, you know, just... Oh! You're You're one of the best operators uh, in in a community of so many great operators. And, you know, what has this experience been like for you uh, just to give some context to the people who are listening, because, you know, Hannah and I are not hands in the dirt doing the work. And, you know, we're seeing the, the ripple effects of this, but you're dealing with it day to day. How has it impacted you? Thank you so much for asking that question. I appreciate that um, a lot. And we actually have two callers on hold. So I'm just going to give like two seconds to this and then I'm going to take the callers. But I will say that the process of being a phase one operator is probably the most challenging and stressful thing I have ever done in my entire life. And as someone who I'm so deeply committed to organic agriculture and regenerative agriculture, which I believe are the kinds of small farms that everyone wants to see succeed in our community, trying to maintain those agricultural practices, which in and of themselves are extremely time consuming, while also balancing um, applying for licenses, the ever-changing cannabis program, spending so much money trying to get these licenses. It's unbelievable. Like, I don't even know sometimes how I'm going to get up and do it again another day. Um, I'm happy to maybe even speak more on that on another show in the future, and we can all be there again. But I want to make sure that we have, we take these callers now. So um, we're going to put our first caller through. Are you there, caller? You're live on the Cannabis Hour. Hi. Yeah, I just, I wanted to say this this conversation is awesome, and I just wanted to point out, you know, uh, the thing that Hannah said about cost of goods sold and tax write-offs, and I think just how incredibly unfair that seems for uh, for us cannabis growers to be singled out in this really bizarre way of what we're allowed to write off in as people that are supposed to be just businesses in the United States following the same rules um, and benefiting the same way. Um, I think it's important, and I think the the fallacy of, like, what pushes, quote-unquote, people into the black market, I think we really need to identify that the Board of Supervisors in Mendo and the way the convoluted system and the problems that we're all facing is the number one thing that will cause cultivators to not want to go legal, which has been, you know, the lifelong dream of lots of cultivators for decades. So for us, for some not to do it, really the complicated ways it is to get it and, and the fees is, is number one. So thanks. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much, caller. So we've got another caller on hold. We're going to put them through. Um, hi, caller. You're live on the Cannabis Hour. Good morning. This is Sarah Bodner, and I 
the policy director for the Cannabis Business Association of Mendocino County. And um, I, I wanted to ask the speakers today if you guys could educate the community a little bit about the importance of having a discretionary use permit in place. I think a lot of people don't understand why Phase 1 has not led to annual licenses and how Phase 3 may offer a better path to annual licensure. Thank you. I'm going to take a, a shot at that. And what I would say is I'm going to reframe it. And I'm going to say we don't know whether or not. I mean, to me, the problems with the current phase. And by the way, I just a technical point. I want to include phase one and phase two because there are people, little known category of phase two, who are in the same boat as the phase one people in terms of this issue. And what what happened was, the county passed its ordinance before the state figured out its entire situation. And the county did not, under CEQA, did a full initial study and a mitigated negative deck, and it analyzed the situation, and it decided that under CEQA, all of the benefits of regulating the system, and particularly regulating it in a manner that was pretty restrictive, Descriptive environmentally in terms of the impacts would be much better than having an unregulated market. Unfortunately, some of the language in the ordinance, as well as just the administration of the ordinance and the fact that it was new and there were all kinds of things to work out and how to roll it out, and on and on and on, there were so many reasons why the Phase one and two people have not been processed all the way through. But on layer on top of that, the state decided after the county enacted its ordinance that each and every application for the state license requires a site-specific review. But then the state really wanted that site-specific review to be done by the local jurisdiction. Typically, that's done in the context of a discretionary permit. And so a number of years ago, uh, maybe I'm losing track of time, a year or more ago, uh, the former building and planning director actually suggested enacting a discretionary permit process as a way to fix phase one and two. And so given that that was the case, I think that particular importance should be placed on that being the primary goal for the any new ordinance. Whether or not people can make it through the current ordinance, if they continue on the path and the solution that has been cobbled together between the state and the county with respect to CEQA, because there is a process that was worked out, is unknown whether it can happen in time. But all cylinders should be fired in continuing down that path while pursuing a discretionary permit process. The discretionary permit process unless we figure out how the mechanism will be to allow for the continuity of those businesses, it won't really effectuate uh, anything for the phase one and phase two people 
if we can't figure out that mechanism to keep them in business. However, it would, if we can figure that out, in the end, at some time, allow them to satisfy that state requirement. However, there is something in place that currently has been cobbled together to help people satisfy that requirement. Um, and I'll just add Thank that. You, I think that when it comes to, uh, I think that everyone would prefer if phase one by itself would work. And, you know, it's possible that with the recommendations that we've made uh, previously and continue to make, that it could be workable for more and more people. That said, without knowing for sure, our number one goal, as we've stated, is to make sure of this business continuity for these licensed operators. And so the number one goal of the setup for phase three to us would be, as we've said, enable that pathway over from the phase one operators. And, you know, MCA supports new cannabis businesses coming online. MCA supports sustainable economic development in the county and everywhere. Um, and what we want to see is whatever system winds up happening with phase three, that it is first and foremost that pathway for the licensed operators to clear out the backlog that currently exists, get those people stabilized as we move forward to a sustainable future that benefits everyone. Thank you both so much. We have only one minute here remaining. Um, I just want to let one of you or both of you uh, give a quick heads up to our community who's listening about the um, important meeting coming up on April 19th and um, just sort of the weight of that and possibly what folks can do if they're feeling like getting involved and making their voices be heard. Um, just real quick because we only have about 30 seconds left on the air. Sure. I'm going to well, let Michael, yeah, go for it, Michael. I just want to say thank you, Jen, for, for hosting this. Go for it, Michael. Yes, thank you, Jen. Uh, and thank you, Hannah. Yeah, on 419 is the, um, is the Board of Supervisors meeting. So uh, this coming Monday, starting at 9 a.m., uh, we will have information posted about it on our website. And actually, also this evening, uh, as is posted on our website and on our social media, we will be having a policy call, a Zoom policy call that is figure out with us uh, how to ensure that phase one operators are protected going into that meeting and making sure that we, you know, continue to rally support and reinforce this message that we, you know, shouldn't need reinforcing, but since it does, uh, we want to make sure that, that we're there and that the community is there speaking out on behalf okay. of these licenses. Thank you both so much. This has been another episode of the Cannabis Hour. I'm your host, Jen Procacci, and I will be back again in two weeks. Have a beautiful day. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.